I am grateful to uh, open the word with you. If you would uh, turn to uh, 1 Timothy uh, in your Bibles, we are week three in this series. Um, Letter from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, who is giving uh, leadership to, his, um, to the church that Paul planted in the ancient city of uh, Ephesus. And uh, before I get started there, just so you know, like I tried to print my notes in my home office. That didn't work. And then it didn't work in uh, the church office this morning. So we're going to just, I'm not trying to be the cool guy up here with my MacBook. Uh, but this is where my notes are, so we're going to work through this. Uh, I asked people in the first service if they would run home and print them for me, but nobody took me up on that. But anyway, uh, we're going to be uh, in a few verses in, for, in chapter 1 today. Uh, this was the outline that we started last week. Uh, we covered the salutation last week and um, the problem of false teaching that was happening, hostility that was happening, not just inside the church, but outside the church uh, where Timothy was giving leadership. And then we're going to cover the law and the gospel today, verses 8 through 11, and then Paul's personal testimony, uh, verses 12 to 17. So that's where we're going to be going uh, in our time together this morning. Let me remind you of where we were last week if you uh, weren't able to be uh, here with us. God's work... Uh, can be simplified uh, to this, faith in Jesus. God's work is not controversy. God's work is not myths and genealogies. God's work is not rigid theology, void of compassion and mercy. God's work is faith in Jesus. And God's command, verse 5, is love. So, So God's work is faith in Jesus. And God's command is to love like Jesus. Love, Greek word agape. Another way to translate agape is a benevolent love, a, a, a sacrificial love, an active love. Um, and so that's where we were last week. And so we talked about that a lot. And then I pointed out last week um, that I want to remind you of that in every salutation that we uh, have in the New Testament, when Paul is writing to a church or to a person, he says grace and peace. He, he proclaims the, the grace of God and the peace of God over the recipients. But in First and Second Timothy, he adds mercy to the salutation. And last week, I invited you just to hold that, like hold that, but I didn't circle back on that. And the reason why I wanted you to hold that was for today. I think today is really part of the reason why Paul includes mercy in his salutation in the letters of First and um, Second Timothy. Uh, I want to say to parents in the room, uh, there's language in the text and in uh, what we're talking about today uh, that, that is, I don't know, well, PG, PG-13. I just want to let you parents know in the room that may have little ones uh, in the room. I just want to let you know about that. I'll be uh, cognizant of that, um, but um, I'm not going to avoid a topic that's in Scripture. So we're going to engage uh, on that. So uh, let's read this, the law and the gospel. Uh, and under Timothy's personal commission from Paul, uh, verses 8 to 11. I just want to highlight first, before we read all of those verses, uh, verse 8, where Paul says to Timothy, we know that the law is good if a person uses the law properly. The law here, Old Testament, Old Covenant, Mosaic law. The reason why it's good is because it's, the, it's God's holiness, like the law is good because it 
proclaims to us the perfection, the holy, righteous reality of who God is. So it's good because it's God's holiness, and it's good if one uses it properly, which begs the question, well, what, how do you use it properly, and what, is it, what would it mean to use it improperly? Obviously, Paul is teaching Timothy to use it properly because there has been some un, improper use of what the purpose of the law is for. So I want to show you a couple of verses from Galatians chapter 3, same Same author, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatia. And he says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The work of God is faith in Jesus. There's a a purpose of the law before Christ came, and it was our guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith, not justified by keeping the law. Now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, now that God's work is faith in Jesus, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Guardian, think uh, guardrails. Uh, Think a direction someplace with some guardrails. Think protection. It's protecting people. It's guarding them. It's leading them to a place. What Paul's saying here in Galatians 3, the purpose of the law is to lead people to Jesus. How does the law, how does the standard of God's holiness lead a person to Jesus? Because when we try to justify ourselves before the law, we will fail every single time. No one is justified by keeping the law. And so we see that the law, the standard of God's holiness is that perfection. We see our inability to achieve it, to be justified before a holy God by our own doing. And we go, Lord, have mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have grace for me. I cannot do it. And so um, the law is to point people to Jesus. And that's when we use it properly, that's the way we can use it. For, so for people who, are, uh, who don't have an identity in Christ, to understand that they can, they can have a full identity in Jesus and receive the mercy and the grace and the salvation that we have in Christ. Well, what's the incorrect use? Well, the incorrect use is holding on to the guardian. It's demanding people to stay under the guardian for their righteousness before God. And Paul has some pretty serious language about that in a few verses before, verses 24 and 25, Galatians 3.10. He says, all who rely on observing the law, if you are relying on the old covenant Mosaic law, if you are relying on that to be right before a holy and righteous God, Paul says this, Galatians 3.10, you are under a curse. That's the language he uses. And then he says in Galatians 3.13, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He obeyed perfectly, liberating us from the demands of the law. And so now we're no longer under that guardian. We are in Christ. We have an identity in Christ. And so the law is good when it leads people to a new identity in Jesus alone, by grace alone, faith alone. That's the purpose. 
but people were using the law in Ephesus for an improper purpose. And so Paul is teaching Timothy, hey, the law is good, but we got to use the law properly. So with that said, verse 8, let's read uh, these first verses, uh, Paul juxtaposing the law, the proper use of the law, and the gospel. Uh, He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and those who practice homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound sound doctrine, for whatever else is contrary to the truth of God's work in Jesus to save us and grant us mercy and grace to liberate us into a new identity. Anything else that's contrary to the work of God, faith in Jesus. And so he's moving in verse 10 from the particular to the general. It's a a rhetorical method of language. He starts with some particular, but he's moving people just to be like, I'm proclaiming the truth. And then he says in verse verse 11, um, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms the truth that conforms to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So let's pause here and talk about these verses. I've been um, reading these verses, pondering, praying, studying these verses for a number of weeks uh, when uh, Lindsay uh, and I uh, talked and prayed and where's, where, where, where are we gonna move uh, the church next? What's the next series? And she said, I think, I think the Lord's leading us to First and Second Timothy. And my response was like, Ooh, First Timothy 1 is spicy. We're going to, it's going to be, you know, it's not easy things to read and talk about. Um, but I think that's good for us. I think that's why I love expository teaching verse by verse through the text. And you read these verses and you're like, man, like at first glance, it's like, man, Paul, like he's coming out swinging here, right? Like he's not holding any any punches. He comes across maybe at first glance as a little harsh, uh, but if I could help us understand the flow of the passage, I think that will switch for you. I think it will move from harsh to merciful, um, gentle, uh, hopeful, gracious, merciful. Uh, certainly the language is direct. It is not, uh, there's no apology from the apostle. This is a serious situation that Timothy is in in the city of Ephesus. Um, I just want to say there's a, there's a lot of commentary uh, on these verses. There's a lot of debate on these verses. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of hurt around these verses. Um, and so I just want us to hold that together. Um, and in, in that reality, I just I want to offer pastorally uh, kind of three, three points about these verses uh, and then a sidebar uh, for us to consider as we uh, think about what Paul is saying here. First, uh, first thing in these verses uh, is this. The flow of thought, first and foremost, notice that the flow of thought is to get Timothy to verse 11. Everything that he's saying is to get Timothy and to get us to the truth in verse 11, which is 
the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Like everything that he's saying in eight and nine and 10 is to move Timothy, to move us to the glory of the blessed God and the gospel that has been proclaimed in Jesus. Um, This isn't Paul rubbing people's noses uh, in their struggle. It is not, um, it's, 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 it's not, it's not specific to um, particular things in our lives that we're working through. The language it carries an identity. Um, it, it, he's speaking more so, he's highlighting when the things that we do become our core identity. And he's juxtaposing a, a person that has an identity in uh, law-breaking or or, or irreligious, uh, and, he, and, and his own testimony, which will come next, is somebody who has fallen on the grace and the mercy and the salvation that we have in Jesus. Um, the language is for the lawbreakers. It was made for sinners. Why? Well, we just talked about that. The purpose of the law is good, to lead people to Jesus so that we are identified in Jesus and we're not identifying ourselves in ourselves. We're not identifying ourselves in myself. I'm identifying my life in Jesus. He's moving everything to verse 11. That's the first point I want you to see. Secondly, I think this is important uh, to, where am I going here? Help from up top, anyone? I don't know why that stopped working. There we go, thank you. Um, the list of offenses, or I, I, I think we could even say the list of identities. The list of identities uh, is not exhaustive. I just, I just think that's important to, to grab onto in this passage. The law um, was made for sinners, and it's not exhaustive. Uh, verse 10, I said this already, Paul uses the rhetorical method of moving from the particular to the general And in these realities, in this rhetorical method, he moves it to, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He's not trying to help people who are struggling to do better, be a better Christian. He is juxtaposing people who are identifying with something other than the beauty, the majesty, the mercy, and the grace, the salvation that we have in Jesus. Um, This is about the proper use of the law leading people all people to Jesus. If you um, read through these verses again, if you didn't pick it up the first time, you'll you'll start to notice um, some similarities in the verses to the Ten Commandments. So the the old covenant of law, and Paul's talking about the proper use of the law, can be summarized by the Ten Commandments. He names lawbreakers, rebels, unholy, irreligious. You shall have no other gods before me. Those who kill their fathers or mothers, honor your father and your mother. For murderers, you shall not murder. For adulterers and for those who practice homosexuality, you shall not commit adultery. For slave traders, you shall not steal. For liars and perjurers, you shall not bear false witness. Again, why is Paul speaking this way? Why is he using language that can connect to the Ten Commandments to use the law in its proper way. What's the proper use of the law to help people who are in unbelief 
have a relationship with the living God and his mercy and his grace and his salvation. So he's using the law in a proper way to help people get to Jesus. That's the point of everything in this passage. Not to uh, evoke fear in people, but to evoke the wonder of God's compassion and mercy. Thirdly, about these verses, uh, Ephesus is known for the worship of Artemis. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Context, context, context. Timothy is a pastor in the ancient city of Ephesus. Polytheism, the worship of many gods. Relativism. There's no absolute truth. There's no standard. It's just anything and everything goes. Polytheistic, relativism. And also there was this... um, cult, this, this, this um, altar to the great Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And I mentioned this uh, week one, two weeks ago. I want to say it again from one of the commentaries that I read. The cult of Artemis permeated every area of life in first century Ephesus. Sexual immorality in all of its forms was rampant in the city. So I want to ask you um, a question about that context of Ephesus, Timothy in Ephesus. Timothy is a pastor and a missionary. So a question for you to think about. Do you think that as Timothy is reading this letter from his mentor, his pastor, his leader in the faith, do you think that he is reading this letter and this non-exhaustive list of Paul using the law properly to get people to Jesus, do you think that he has stories of real people and real lives as he reads through these verses? He absolutely has real people and real lives and real situations. This isn't just rigid theology. This is about pastoring people and their real lives and their real struggles. And so he has people in mind as he reads this. These are people to love. Remember, the command of God is love. The work of God is faith in Jesus. The command of God is love, an active love, an agape love. These are people for Timothy to love. Love and mercy meets real people in their real lives and in their real stories. So here's the sidebar. For us, um, we could be tempted to lift things from this, again, non-exhaustive list and make the passage about sin management when really the passage is about getting all people to Jesus. There's a lot, listen, there is a lot of controversy. Um, there's a lot of question There's a lot of debate. Uh, There's a lot of harm that's happened with these verses, okay? Uh, I think, honestly, I think these conversations are much better one-on-one. But I do want to offer some of my own heart pastorally to you uh, in this as a sidebar. First, uh, we, we we must walk with humility here, every single one of us. We must walk with humility. There's a danger. Um, There's a danger when you rip verses out of context and you make them a weapon against people. And that's not the way of Jesus. Um, Listen, 
um, the purpose of the law. And Paul's purpose here is to lead people to Jesus. Um, so what I want to do is I want to I lead us away from controversies and rigid theology that's void of mercy and love. That's, I want to I want to lead us away from that. Uh, because for every verse about sexual immorality or same-sex attraction, there are infinitely more that emphasize compassion, mercy over judgment, agape love, gentleness, and patience. And rigid theology without love and mercy holding real people's lives and real people's stories is damaging and harmful. So hear me, I'm not saying don't be biblical. Be biblical, do the study, do the work, okay? Be biblical. I'm not saying don't be biblical. Be biblical. What I'm saying is we must be biblical and we must be merciful. Because if we're biblical and we're not merciful, we're not being biblical. So that's where I want to lead us in this conversation. Um, let's be a people who have theology, who have biblical theology, but more, but more, let's be a people who desire to listen to and honor uh, and care for the struggle, the stories of real life and real people. Let's be a church who is known more for our grace and mercy and agape love than anything else. That's my heart. Um, secondly, um, our sexuality is personal and complicated. Every single person in the room, our sexuality is personal and complicated. This conversation touches all of our stories in some way or another, whether it's someone we know or it's in our own story. It touches every single person in the room in some way or another. And so let's, let's just say this out loud. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. I'll just say this. I'll just say this. I have never met anyone who didn't or who hasn't had, has had some sort of struggle with sexuality or sexual sin. I've never met anyone. If they're, if they're honest, if they're like truthful, there's not been some sort of struggle with sexuality or sexual sin in our life. And I, I, am, I am one with all of you. And so what I'm saying is this. If we, if we are reading these verses and that causes me to scrutinize others more than I scrutinize myself, I'm reading the Bible wrong. We all need to surrender our sexuality to God and not make it our core identity. We all, we all need to surrender our sexuality to heaven and to allow the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to sift us and to sanctify us in abounding grace and abounding mercy and with unlimited patience and return it to us for us to obey. Why do I say that? Because as we get into Paul's testimony, this is his invitation to us. 
His invitation to us is to allow heaven to transform our identity from anything that's not of Jesus to make your identity fully alive in Jesus and Jesus changes everything. And that's Paul's testimony and that's where he gets to next. It's his invitation to us. The gospel of God's glory came to him, changed everything in his life. So everything was surrendered and everything got changed because of mercy and because of grace. And here's his testimony. Because I think what Paul's going to say in the testimony is this. If you want to point a finger at someone being sinful, point it at me. So before any of us switch the language of Jesus, Jesus said, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what Jesus said. And so if any of us like, you know what, I'm going to switch that. I'm going to go judgment over mercy. I think Paul would say, before you point the finger at anyone, point it at me. Point it at me. And that's what he's going to share with us in his testimony, which is the next verses, uh, verses 12 to 17. Paul's personal testimony. Listen to his life change. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he, he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Me, Paul, he appointed me to service. You have any idea how sinful I was, Paul would say. Even though I was a blasphemer, even though I defamed the name of God. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, if you were a blasphemer, you were, your punishment was death. And Paul's like, that was me. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners. I think Paul's like saying, hey, if you didn't believe me the first time when I'm telling you I'm the worst of sinners, I'm gonna tell you again, I'm the worst of sinners. So if you're pointing the finger at anyone, point it at Paul. And his life is an example to show the mercy of God that Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Jesus and receive eternal life. Now, and then he just, and then Paul, he just gets carried away with the gospel. He just gets so caught up in gratitude and worship. Now to the king eternal, mortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, I, I read these verses and I hear Paul's language and hear his testimony. And it just leads me to this, to this reality. Like, like no, no one is ever too far gone. No one. No one you know, no one you care about, no one you're praying for, not you. No one is ever too far gone for the grace and the mercy and the love of of Jesus to redeem them. To blaspheme 
defame God's holy name. Paul's like, I deserve death, literally. I was a blasphemer and a violent man, but now I'm appointed to the service of heaven. So if you want to point the finger, point at me, because I was the worst, literal murderer, shown mercy. He says this in verse 14. He starts getting carried away in his testimony. And he goes, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. This is the game changer. Like the grace of Jesus, the unmerited favor of God came to me, but not just grace. Like he adds this superlative to the language. Poured out on me abundantly. Um, That's the Greek word that's translated abundantly. I don't know how to pronounce that word. So I'm not going to try to. I got on... um, like Bible Hub this morning, like to try to listen to somebody pronounce that Greek word to, you know, impress you with my Greek. But anyway, I I couldn't find it. But that's the Greek word. And Paul doesn't just say grace. He uses a superlative to grace. And he does it here in 1 Timothy. He also does it in Ephesians 2, 7. The surpassing riches of his grace. Another Greek word, transcendent. To superabound, grace superabounds, grace transcends. He does it again in Romans 5.20. Grace increases all the more, all the more. There's the Greek word for all the more, to exceedingly overflow, right? So question to you, these three Greek words that none of us know how to pronounce, what do you notice? What's the similarity of all three of these Greek words? Hyper, the prefix. Hyper gets a bad rap. We've taken hyper and we've made it something really negative, right? Preachers like me, like, oh, you know, that that preacher at Two Rivers, man, he's one of those like hyper grace guys. And when they say hyper grace guys, they don't mean it as a term of endearment to me. But I will tell you, if anybody calls me a hyper grace guy, That's me right here, hallelujah, over and over and over again. And what I'm telling you right now is that hyper grace is biblical. Paul uses it not just to describe grace, but to blow your mind with how amazing grace really is. It's super abounding grace. It's transcending grace. It's overflowing grace. Grace, and he's like, that's, that's my life. That's my testimony, and I'm proclaiming this kind of grace to you. Paul is not teaching Timothy to be condemning to people who are acting in unbelief like Paul was acting in unbelief. That's not what he's leading Timothy to do. He is leading Timothy to proclaim the hyper grace of Jesus to people who are acting in unbelief and who need a new identity in Jesus. That's what he's leading Timothy to do. He says in verse 16, I was shown mercy so that Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience. Another way to translate unlimited is perfect patience. So not only does Jesus, not only is Jesus full of hyper grace, he is also full of unlimited patience with people. To which I would invite you to this question, is it enough? Is that enough? Is the mercy of God, the hyper grace of God, God's unlimited patience, is that enough to cover it all? 
Is it enough for, for you? Let's not worry about them. This passage isn't about them. This passage is about getting you and me to Jesus. His mercy, his grace, his unlimited, perfect patience. And Paul is saying this, if God can save me, he can save anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you identify with, no matter what you've done, if God can save Paul, he can save anyone. Here's the very essence of the Christian message from Paul. This is a proclamation. Paul's testimony to Timothy, this is what you are to proclaim, Timothy. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Believe on Jesus and receive eternal life. This is the message that has been proclaimed and welcomed and received by Christians for two millennia. Human beings who understand the proper use of the law, who come to the place to go, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, be gracious with me. Lord, I receive your patience for me. And I believe and I receive and I step into life. Life. Eternal life. Abundant life. Real life. The free gift of salvation in the life and death of Jesus. And so, to all of you listening right now, whether you're here in the service or you're listening to this uh, on your car one day, you're watching it online, whatever it is, if you're listening to me right now, this is what I am saying to all of you. God is rich in mercy to you. The sovereign mercy of God that reached to Paul is reaching for you. His grace is super abounding to you, to you. His patience is perfect and unlimited to you, to me. Receive it. Receive it. Come under it and be free and receive a new identity and the hope that we have in Jesus. Religion, um, religion they want to divide. Religion wants to divide people, Right? Divide people into two distinct categories, good people and bad people. That's how religion wants to divide people. And I read this passage, I go, man, the, the gospel divides people into two very different categories. People who need Jesus and people who have said, I need Jesus. And I have received the abundance of his grace and mercy and patience in my life. And it has changed everything for me. Uh, worship team, you guys can come back up. I want to remind you of some things that Jesus said about mercy in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Jesus was having um, dinner at his friend Matthew's house. And uh, Matthew was a former um, tax collector. And so if you're in first century Israel, Capernaum, and you're Jewish, and you're a tax collector, you are the betrayer 
Like you are taking money from your own people and you're giving it to the oppressive government of Rome and you're taking a little bit more than you need to take for your own benefit. Oh man, the Jewish people, they hated tax collectors. They were the worst of the worst. Jesus is hanging out at Matthew's house. And Matthew had invited other tax collectors and other sinners to his house. And they were all there. And the Pharisees, the religious people, like the leaders, they were like sinners. Jesus and all the sinners. I don't know if they said it like that, but I think they might have said it like that. (laughs) And they asked the disciples, like, why does your teacher eat, sit down, have conversation, enjoy a meal with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? Because they're so busy dividing people between good people and bad people. Why does he do that? And on hearing this, Jesus said, let's just get this, let's just get this clear right here, right now. Let's just get this thing centered and who I am and what this whole thing is about. And he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to life. People who need Jesus, people who need Jesus. Everything in Paul's testimony is like, come to Jesus. He'll change everything in your life. He'll change everything in your life. His mercy, his grace, his patience, it's unlimited for us. This is the gospel. Uh, Lord, thank you for space to be awakened to the hyper, superabounding, transcendent, exceedingly overflowing truth that you are the God of all grace and mercy and that your patience is perfect. And Lord, I believe and proclaim it is enough. It is enough. So Lord, help us to walk away from religion and awaken us to heaven. Awaken us to heaven, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the best ways to awaken your own personal story to heaven is the communion table the Lord's table. In fact, Jesus said, when you gather in my name, do this in remembrance of me. And as you do this, you will be reminded that my mercy and my grace and my blood was for you. And so taste and see that the goodness of God has come to you in your life and get stirred up in gratitude and wonder that you have received mercy in your time of need. And so we take the bread which is symbolic of the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And we, and we drink the juice that is symbolic of his blood that was shed for us. And we receive it in this tangible way. And I pray that it awakens us in a fresh way this morning. 
that the gospel has come to you. And so if you want to, those little packets in the P-Racks, you're welcome to grab one of those. If you're on the front row, ask the person behind you to give you one. Um, listen, I know those little, those little wafers taste terrible. Right, I get that. Um, but receive it in a spiritual way today, not in a legalistic way. We're not checking boxes here. We're just, we're, we're, we're coming into the presence of God to be reminded in a tangible way that this was for me. And allow the Holy Spirit to move you to a place of gratitude where you can say, and now to the King eternal, immortal, the only wise God has saved me. And you get stirred up in the gratitude of the gospel. Let's worship. We've got a couple songs to sing, communion to receive. Um, enter into the presence of God, I pray.